Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Airport Minute, where each day we recount minute by minute the greatest disaster movie ever made, 1970 Universal Pictures Airport. I am one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDad.com. And I'm host number two, Mark Cerulli of CovertOps.tv, and we are delighted to have uh, writer and pop culture expert, Mr. Chris Epting, with us. How you doing, guys? Hey, doing great. Thanks so much for being on the show. It's, it's really uh, wonderful to have you on here. I mean, I can't think of anybody who knows more about pop culture or has written more about pop culture than, than you have, Chris. You're up to... I'm sorry, how many books have you written on this? I think about 26 or 27. I lose count myself, but that's kind of the fun of doing this. You don't, I don't think so much about the number of titles, but just the amount of content that's out there, you know, to try and to deconstruct, uh, kind of like you guys are doing here with the airport, and just sort of get to the heart of what makes this kind of pop culture so special. It, this is kind of uh, one of the touch points of uh, pop culture in the 70s. I mean, we are crossing over from the old-fashioned type of 1940 soap opera movie, and it's set in a, you know, the location of the 70s. So it, it's interesting to see the interactions of the old world and the new. You've got uh, you know, a lot of classic actors and things in there. Absolutely. And I mean, I don't have to tell you guys just how much of this set the table for what was to come in terms of these kinds of movies from the sublime as this was into the ridiculous as it became. And it really, <laughs> this is such a, a great template for, uh, for what we were going to get in a couple of years. And I mean, I remember as a kid, this movie had a certain seriousness to it that affected me i mean i had like a fear of flying as a kid after seeing this movie you know because all of a sudden it wasn't just this kind of fun in the sky thing there was like real danger out there yeah i can you imagine what the sales of flight insurance must have been after this thing came out (laughs) what did you what were your thoughts when you sat down next to a guy clutching a briefcase (laughs) i'm getting off this plane (laughs) right Wow, but uh, we are we are right up to gosh, we are deep in this movie now. We're we're more than an hour and six minutes into into the movie. More than two months into it. <laughs> yeah, it feels like that. So uh, they still and they still haven't taken off yet. Flight two is isn't that uh, is amazing? That's incredible to me too. When you think about the immediacy of today's day and age, like. Back then, you know, you could hang back. You know, plot development didn't have to be like this crack a whip, you know, get it going. They really could let things develop. That's one thing about this film that really struck me. Oh, yeah. If you think of like a movie like Flight with uh, Denzel Washington, that that movie is 10 minutes in and they're already having the disaster. Um, Yeah, it's it's just astonishing that they – but they do take a lot more time with character development. By the time we're at this point in the movie and they haven't taken off – we know everything there is to know about everybody else you know, in the film. We're almost at the end of Act 1. Exactly, and that's what I think is so interesting. The backstory really does, I think it creates a tension that we kind of lack today. You know, tension's kind of gone the way of, like you say, they come grab you around the neck in the first five minutes, but this kind of tense, taut build-up is, is really yeah. kind of refreshing when you look at it today. We haven't had anybody on that's a, uh, a millennial yet, but I'm trying to find out what their reaction would be to this. I would think that it would be kind of glacial in yeah. the way of oh they'll be out in the first 30 seconds i mean yeah they'll... yeah, yeah there no better be car an explosion chase, or... no no big explosions i'm out yeah it's one of those movies that you can either enjoy or not enjoy it's a matter of taste but this it's still i think it holds up i, I think we're gonna you... change america's mind one podcast at a time <laughs> i think it definitely holds up and not just because you see this kind con- this uh you know the faces that you see, it just it jogs so many memories. That's what gets me when you look away from the main characters. You look in the background inside of the right. smaller players. 
all of a sudden it's like it's every match game episode. It's every, <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it, all the ways in the 70s we grew up with celebrities and what they went on to do uh, post-film careers. It's like there they are, you know, the pantheon of these kinds of people. So, again, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to watch uh, if you grew up in this era. I think there's so much more going on beyond the predictable action and plot of just looking at those faces that are so familiar to us and, you know, commercials and game shows and all those things. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like the proto love boat. I mean, it, absolutely. Just, uh, no, absolutely. I mean, it, and yeah, it's it part of our it, it's part of our history. I mean, like you said, those, those faces are indelibly etched in our minds. And it kind of brings you back to your childhood when you see these things. Well, I'm looking at I mean, in, in the first minute we're going to talk about in 66, I have it up now. And just the freeze frame of the very first shot of Dean Martin where you can't see his hands they are at his side. And it's like I'm I'm projecting a drink in one hand and a cigarette <laughs> in the other. <laughs> I mean, these people know it's Dean Martin flying their plane. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. yeah. It's, right. it's like it's a Mount Rushmore face. This isn't just an actor. This is somebody who is so indelibly brained. Yeah, it's the Rat Pack. It's Dino. It's and the weirdest part is he never takes a drink in this movie. No, so. <laughs> just when you see him, and the, the free association you do with his face, it's so automatic that I chuckled when this thing first came up. And I thought, you know, if you're on a plane and you've seen Dean Martin flying, that's your problem, not the snow and not the bombs. <laughs> exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it, you know, it, and there's, like you're saying, there's just this setup. And he's only the beginning of that minute. I mean, we're, we're setting the scene from, uh, uh, from, from yesterday. He is in, uh, you know, they're, they're just about to take off the... Passenger check doesn't match because uh, uh, Helen Hayes is snuck on board, Please. and uh, they're they're spending all this time on the ground, and he's got to go out and, uh, as uh, Anson Harris told him, make some noise. So uh, he's being he's being the bad the bad guy boss and telling the gate agent to to leave. We we've talked about this on previous episodes that uh, Dean Martin at the time he this was the peak of his career. He was running the you know Dean Martin Gold Diggers Hour. Right. On NBC, he was basically, you know, he was at the level of like a Seinfeld or a Bill Cosby of his particular decade. He, Pope besides Johnny Carson, scandal, Bill Cosby. Yeah, let's point yeah, that he, out. Yes, he, he he was basically the money maker. He was the cash cow for NBC, and he could do whatever he want when he when he did the Gold Diggers Hour. He only he never rehearsed. He showed up Sunday afternoons, read everything off of a cue card, and went home. He was done in three hours, and. It, while he was doing that show, he was also making this movie, so he didn't really have time for rehearsing and uh, and learning scripts and stuff. So this is one of the classic Dino scenes where you can watch him reading off a giant cue cards over the guy's shoulder. He's not, you know, the, the eye line. Yeah, I'm like, noticing that right now. He's looking past the guy. Yeah, yeah, and there's like you know just some precious fuel we'll need in the air written in big blue letters behind him on a card. You know, all he has to do is kind of nod his head on the reverse shots. So but funny. he still he he still manages to sell the lines. I mean, yeah. you're, you're giving. Yeah. You know, well, I think he's got enough equity at this point where people have this kind of weird, if not trust in him. You know, it, it it is sort of a perverse trust because he was so committed to that character that you just anything he did at this point, I'm sure people would kind of go with because they genuinely liked him. I mean, he was so beloved and. You know, yeah, I, and and he's always, even though you know he has a different name in the show, he's always Dean Martin. It's it's like seeing Bill Murray in a in a movie. Right, there's right. Bill Murray. You know, you think there's Dean Martin. He's flying the ship. But the audience so, bought him as a serious uh, uh, plane pilot. Yeah, 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 and he, he it's it's acceptable. And at the time, you didn't need that you know verse 
you know, the, he did he didn't need to be the actual thing. You didn't he didn't have to sell himself that much. Just like, okay, Dean's a pilot in this one, fine. Yeah, and I think that rogue the, the rogue aspects of his personality probably help it too. Because I think back then, even today, you kind of want your pilots to be you know a sort a sort of badass guy, right? You want them to be no nonsense. You want them to be a, sort of a man's man. You know what I mean? So I think those qualities were probably projected on him as well and made him a pretty good you know pilot to a lot of the viewers. Yeah, and he's acceptable as, you know, having a hot girlfriend who's almost exactly half his age. You know, you see Jacqueline Bissett there, and it's like, okay. Sure, Um, why wouldn't she be dating Dean Martin? (laughs) But, uh, yeah, it it just, it goes along, the the ensemble quality of it is is good, too. They all, all the actors seem, there doesn't seem to be any awkwardness between any of them. They all know what they're doing. They all know... Uh, you know, Even the, when they didn't direction. like each other, I mean, you pointed out that uh, that Bert and Gene Seberg had had some issues, but you could never tell. You know, they no, they they were pros. Yeah. You know, so uh, there's a lot of economy of uh, of storytelling here. They get a lot of story out of the way. You know, it's, we they rely on the dialogue. You know, in inside of 20 seconds, you get to the major. You know, this is a pain point where it, is Helen Hayes going to get found out? And right here at the last second. The, uh, the ticket agent says cancel the cancel the ticket count and you know runs off stage. So you've got that whole story problem settled. I, li- I like was... too, you know, the fact that you were dealing with kind of passenger manifest lists and all that in this uh, in this minute. It kind of shows too that even back then, I think people assumed that back at this era there were no real concerns about flying. You know, from a security standpoint or anything like that, you could just basically hop on. It was a party in the sky. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It was I mean, there was a lot of glamour to it and it, this is the, you know, the height of the jet setting where nor, you know, normal everyday people could actually get on a plane. Right. So But, but they was, were still being careful, you know, there was still kind of an issue here and I think it's interesting. I, I had kind of forgotten that too that that they actually would sort of match these lists and you know, they would track these things uh even back yeah, then. Yeah. But even back then, I mean, I, I can remember as a kid, um my mom worked for American Airlines and we used to, you know, fly a lot. But I remember as a kid, they used to sell tickets. You could get on a plane and not have a ticket, and you could buy a ticket. For like you know, it's like like buying it on an Amtrak train. You could buy it from the conductor who was a you in know the, flight in attendant. the sky. Yeah, wow. yeah. They just you know they pull out their uh, diners club and you know run a run a ticket thing. They wouldn't they wouldn't check it against anything. But you know they those days they'd are run gone. It little, yeah. <laughs> But to your point, though, about, you know, capturing the the golden era of flying, when you look at a a grab here, I'm looking at at 41 seconds in, and, you know, every man has a shirt and tie on. Yeah. The proper formality of it, really. I mean, I was flying the other day, and, you know, to my left armrest, a foot appears, right? A guy that had had flip-flops on has taken it off, and there's there's his foot, I'm on the aisle, and his foot appears on my left armrest. You know what I mean? Like, that's what it's come to. Yeah, you, yeah, I have to ask, Every, what did you do? Uh, I told him, I asked him if he could, uh, uh, I politely asked if he could please excuse his foot, which he sort of harumped but did. But it's like, that's what you're dealing with. It's, yeah. it's, it's tank tops and flip-flops versus this, what you see in this frame, this formality of everybody just being so buttoned up. It was like you dressed to fly. Yeah, it looks like a church almost. The way that you know, yeah. every, everybody's in their best. And nobody, you don't even see an un, you know, like... A, an untucked shirt or a loosened tie. No. It's just, they're pristine. So, and nobody if cares it, if the person next to you lights up, which is, you'll, yeah. you'll see that in a, in, in a, a couple of scenes. Right. 
Yeah, might, but we know. we jump back and forth between that uh, that wonderful 707 set and then that wild uh, handheld Araflex following Maureen Stapleton running through the Minneapolis or the Lincoln International. Following the woman with the uh, the igloo on her head. <laughs> the leopard skin igloo. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it is quite well, jarring seeing that yeah. uh, with everybody going through it. And I'm just remembering that right now. every one of those suits that you're seeing in the background was designed by Edith Head. It's amazing. So it, it's amazing. Different, different shades of brown. Yeah, look, there's the there's dueling hats. The leopard skin hat, but then she has an almost early Linda Ronstadt look too. The woman in the white hat there, yeah, you yeah, know, that kind of stone ponies, modish <laughs> night late nineteen sixties look. Yeah, there's a lot of style you know going on, uh, and there's somebody. It's funny at it, 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 thirty six seconds in at far left. There's somebody at some kind of machine. Looks like yeah, I'm, looks like an I, ATM, I look, but it's too early for ATMs. I think it might be an automated mutual of Omaha flight insurance. Uh, there you go. Machine. That's probably it. That's right. They yeah, but what? And and then behind her is something that looks like it's decorated with bricks. Bricks, yeah, like like brick wallpaper, not real brick, mm. but the stuff yeah. they would slap on. That it's almost like a video game, but it yeah, couldn't but be. that's it, it. It's too early for that. So I don't I don't know what that is. It's just a lost piece of the past. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. There's actually it's, more of them as the frame widens out. Yeah, it's almost like an arcade. Yeah, or yeah, something. yeah. It looks. Like... <laughs> uh, that's a pinball machine way in the back. I think I may be wrong. It's. It looks. That's what it looks like. It's... Oh my god! Yeah, yes, I... didn't they have like a spinning light or something on it? I just. Yeah, it could it be. A... Yeah, I mean, could there be like? I didn't think they had slot. Yeah, it looks machines like something could jackpot, but... but that could. Yeah. yeah. But but wow. but you know what? But right there, that kind of detail, I think that's the beauty of what you guys are doing because we never would have gotten to what we just did were it mm. not for breaking down right. and deconstructing minutes. I mean, at some yeah, point, yeah. maybe there'll be like a an airport second where you literally just take a second, <laughs> you know, for, for uh, the for the millennials. Yeah. Maybe that's what they need. Something. What's one hundred and thirty-seven times sixty? That would. <laughs> oh my yeah, we've God. been making episodes that forever. But yeah, it's, it is a lost world. When you go back to these things, and you think, wow, I was, I was alive when this was going on, so I should know what that stuff is. But it, you know, there's so many things that are lost to us forever that nobody, you know, it's, it's ephemera of the time. Right, but again, um, that formality is something, that to me is what kind of comes across in the whole film, is that, that age of flying that is so far gone and we'll never get back to, you know, uh, and I think that's something that younger people should definitely watch and appreciate the fact that flying was this great, formal ritual you know where it was almost a privilege to be up there you know this this mystery of what it was like to fly yeah the uh the lewis ck line about you're in a chair in the sky and just nobody ever lost that idea that wow i'm up here in the you know in the clouds with with other people i better get dressed up yeah Uh, and nowadays people dress like their you know their laundry is uh (laughs) is due so but uh what you were saying earlier about seeing those familiar faces and stuff, we get to uh, uh, second number 39 in this minute where uh, the fabulous Whit Bissell shows up, Mr. playing Mr. Davidson. He's seated next to uh, Helen Hayes and Van Heflin. Yeah. And, Van Halen. Uh, that guy, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think he has the guitar. But, uh, yeah, Whit Bissell has been in everything. Uh, uh, we love him from Creature from the Black Lagoon. That's my favorite, yeah. Oh, I love that film. That's next, Creature from the Black Lagoon Minute. Come on. <laughs> the time tunnel guy. He's just, you know, he's always a general. He's always some Science guy in charge. Distinguished. Well, yeah, he, distinguished. Yeah, he turned Michael Landon into a werewolf. You know, it's just, 
I wonder uh, if these guys you mentioned Van Heflin sitting there. Like, did they have to read for the? You know, were they cast as this? Was there an audition process? I yeah, you know, I look at films like this and I wonder who was automatically cast and who had to actually go in and not have something offered to them. Like at their stages in their career, you know what I mean? Was there? Yeah, had ageism well, crept in yet? I mean, you look at faces like that that had done so much up until that point. And and you wonder, like, from a career standpoint, what did it take to get to that seat right there? What did they have to do to get that part? Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of them are uh, friends of George Seaton. He had used the director here had used them in other movies, right. so they kind of he had his own little crew that came in. He and some of them were just regular uh, Universal, you know, contract players. If you look behind Helen Hayes, you'll see Pat Priest, who was Marilyn Munster, right? And uh, she was a she was a Universal contract player. Yeah, that's um, incredible. And, yeah, and there, there she is. So, you know, a lot of them, I guess it was whatever was available. So this would have been post-Monsters? Yeah, this is post-Monsters. A few years, yeah. Yeah, a couple of years after. So, um, And this may have been one of her last roles. I think she did a couple of, you know, NBC mystery movie things where she was, you know, an extra character. So, you know, had they had, but, like, Fred Gwynn in character in the back, that little cameo <laughs> that would have been a fun addition great. to this. Yeah. Really throwing things off on the plane. Or just the entire Munster family, but you know, in Mufti, there's, it's like, wait a minute, isn't that <laughs> Ivan de Carlo? Yeah, they're uh, they're all getting set up, and there's that little moment of tension where uh, the uh, flight attendant is about to ask Helen Hayes for her ticket, and then yeah. and then uh, Jacqueline Desai shows up for the save. And these flight attendants, you know, you sh- the outfits to me are so it's sort of a cross between Lost in Space and Star Trek, which adds yeah. to the great kind of astral quality. You know, the the space agey kind of almost googie kind of wardrobe. Yeah, yeah, the I mean, they should they should be flying LAX with that. totally. But but it <laughs> looks... did you see Helen Hayes' eye roll? I mean, she's just so perfect in every scene. You know, when she when the stewardess is asking for the tickets and she just kind of looks over and just buries her head back in whatever she was reading. She's incredible. Yeah. She's almost yeah. got that silent film actress quality of overplaying right. for effect, but it works. You right. know, she it understands. Totally works. Yeah. She totally yeah, understands yeah. how to. How I, I to would bet she film. didn't have to audition. I would bet, you know, they. Oh, just absolutely. Made yeah. Yeah, I, I you know I don't know if they if they picked her because Ruth Gordon was busy, but she you know she was ideal for this part. She she just and Olivia De Havilland they'd have in the in one of the future ones. So <laughs> yeah, what's funny if you watch her there, Van Heflin is acting. You know what I mean? Like he's taking yeah. nothing for granted. He's making every millisecond count with his right. with his stares off in the distance like that. There is a bit of acting going on there. Yeah, and just all the the little set details like. You know, outside there, outside the 707, it's snowing yeah. and they light it. You know, they, they didn't have to show anything outside, but it gives it that little bit of depth. And you know that the snow is still going on. It does the matching shot with the exterior back at uh, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, where we're watching them start up the, uh, the startup sequence for uh, for the 707, which is going to continue through, uh, the, through the rest of our week here. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it is just a beautiful setup to... Um, you know, what's going to end the act? I mean, we have we have uh, Maureen Stapleton r- racing. You don't know if she's going to get there or not. Of course, she you know she can't get there because that would end the show. Right. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, you still lean into it. It's like, oh, she's going to get there. She's going to stop them. Is she going to get them off the plane? Is he going to blow it up? You know. So, but it leaves us here um, with uh, with the engine startup sequence for the seven hundred seven, which is thrilling. I mean, you know, at the time you're watching a jet plane fire up, absolutely know, fire up, and all that sound and just the overwhelming. Yeah. You know, the, the, the atmosphere is really set. 
But I think we're at the end of this minute here. It's, the very uh, last second of the min- minute, you see the three guys uh, in the cockpit, right, right. which reminds yeah. me there was a show on called Captain Scarlet in the 60s. It was a yes. British yeah. show. Yeah. And those three pilots, that's what they look like to me. That was my favorite show as a kid. And they all have that kind of space agey look. You know, they're strapped in, but it's still kind of high tech for the day. You know, you know. I think oh, we forget back then you weren't used to seeing cockpit scenes like this. This was kind of unexplored. I think as a as a film goer, we didn't see a lot of this at that point. Commercial flight, you know, hadn't really been tackled on this level where you were brought into the cockpit. And they all have matching pens. If you if you really yeah, like. <laughs> well, that, that's part of the TGA uniform, I think. <laughs> standard issue but uh yeah it's a it is a it, this has been a great minute I mean, it's really a, a fascinating uh, a look into how this is going to go there's a lot of tension there there are two different tension points you're it's watching its own Mor- one act play absolutely i think this minute is is just chock full of stuff yeah wow well we have more action to come in the next minute so please uh come back tomorrow you'll be able to uh hear some more of this chris uh, i hope you'll be with us absolutely and i um, think you will <laughs> I have, a, I have a good guess he will. But uh, if, if you'd like to join in on the conversation here, uh, we have plenty of places for you to comment. If you go to uh, Twitter, we're at Airport Minute. If you go to Facebook, uh, search for Airport Minute. We have our great big site at airportminute.com where you can leave a comment under every single episode. Also, if you haven't seen the movie, and by the way, it's been 66 minutes, you should be watching this movie before you before you start listening to our podcast. But you can catch up on the right-hand side of every episode. You can order a copy of, uh, of Airport in either digital or Blu-ray or DVD format. It's all there. Um, we're not, we're not going to be millionaires off of this thing, but if it, it's there to help you. You can be watching this movie in the next five minutes. So uh, check that out. Uh, also, if you want to listen to this Monday through Friday, uh, you can download it directly to your mobile device by going to iTunes and subscribing to Airport Minute. Please leave us a great review there because the more great reviews we get, the more people find out about our little podcast. But please join us tomorrow when we find out if Maureen Stapleton is going to win the uh, 300-yard dash to gate 33. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for being with us, and until tomorrow, good day. Bye-bye. See ya. Nice going, sweetheart. Remind me to send a thank you note to Mr. Bowling.